<clears throat> well, it's quite the passage that we're going to look at this morning, and um, I'm going to try and stay contained to the, uh, uh, to, well, to the time frame that is allotted. Uh, there's a lot we could say about this passage. It's a, it's a big one. Um, in the course of our studies, you know, our, pat- our pattern of study is expositional ministry regularly, uh, which we're actually going to break next week. I'll talk about that. We're going to have a topical sermon next week as we celebrate our anniversary Sunday. Uh, as a church, but our regular pattern is just to work through the scriptures, and as we do, we come to some passages that are familiar, others, other passages which are familiar, but, but difficult for us at times, um, and we do so, we, we keep going through the Bible uh, faithfully in that way, because we recognize that all of scripture is breathed out by God, and it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian, in ter- in, in, including some of the harder passages, and uh, for some, for some of us, this passage may be a little bit trickier today. Um, but we'll we'll try to set the context and we'll we'll look at it together. Um, so we'll set the we'll set the the context for it in this way. Uh, in the course of our relationships, we come to understand that getting to know others is a process. So to really know someone is not just to experience only a part of who they are. Uh, for example, we might have a good friend at work and we're used to interacting with them. In the workplace, we may talk about some personal stuff, but, but the main context for our relationship is centered on that working environment. And in that setting, we feel that we've gotten to know the person fairly well, but then maybe we find ourselves outside of our workplace context with them for some reason. Maybe it's a, it's a social event that we're at together, or maybe we're engaging in some kind of recreation, we're going on a hike or something together, and all of a sudden we realize that we don't know them as well as we thought we did. Uh, the way they act or the things that concern them, maybe just how they conduct themselves in a different situation. Uh, it's not that they're, they're different than we knew them to be, but they're more complicated maybe than we assumed uh, them to be. There, there are more sides to this person. And so it is as we spend time with people in all kinds of various settings, as we see different sides of who they are, that's really when we begin to get to know them. It's not just... Uh, that we didn't know them before, it's just that we didn't maybe know them quite as well. And there's a sense in which this passage that we're looking at in John's Gospel this morning, where Jesus clears the temple, uh, this is one of those kinds of passages that can catch us off guard at first in terms of what it means to know Jesus. And maybe that's because we've spent some time with Jesus, maybe an extended amount of time in terms of our Christian life. We've spent time with Jesus to a certain extent. We've, we've grown in our knowledge of Him through His Word and so on. But in that time, we may have known Him in, in, in just some particular way. So, for example, we may have spent a lot of time in our Christian walk knowing Jesus to be the extraordinary comforter that we find him to be in the gospel. So he's bringing relief to the sick and the poor and the hopeless. And we've learned something of that aspect of Jesus' personhood as it's applied to our own life. We've come to know Jesus to be this person for us. He is the one who comforts us in sorrow and distress. He's come to be that person. He's, he's gentle in his dealings with us. And so we've gotten to know him in that way. Or maybe in, in the recent course of our Christian life, it's not so much the, the gentle and compassionate side of who Christ is that's stood out to us, but, but maybe it's been the reality of the fact that Jesus is the truth. You know, in the day when, when so many opinions are promoted as what we must believe, the word Jesus speaks is the true word, and we come to find great help in that. He's, he's proved faithful to the promises He makes, the provision that He guarantees. He guarantees by His own death on the cross in our place. And maybe it's not so much the gentle aspect of Jesus' personhood that's affected us lately, but instead maybe it's the faithful and true aspect of Jesus' personhood that has been particularly 
meaningful to us in this season. To know he won't lose his grip on me. His word to me will stand. His provision is sure. I can't be removed from his love no matter the circumstances. So, so that truth and faithful, uh, faithfulness aspect of Christ has become meaningful. So I wonder if I were just to ask for a show of hands, I'm not going to, but if I were to ask for a show of hands this morning, uh, most of us might easily be able to raise a hand and identify with some of these things. Uh, if, if I said something like, who has been particularly comforted uh, recently by the fact that Jesus is gentle with us and a comforter to us. Some of us would no doubt put our hands up, uh, reflecting on our own personal experiences with Christ as our Lord. Or, or if I said something like, who's been particularly comforted or even convicted lately by the fact that Jesus is the true and faithful one. You know, some of us could put our hands up and say, that's been particularly meaningful to me as of late. Uh, but what if I were to ask this morning, if you would just please put up your hands, if Jesus, the zealous one, has been a particular encouragement to you lately. Or, or to put it a little more specifically, if I were to say in the course of your days and the things you face, the challenges, the temptations, the, the difficulties, all of the stuff of life, what if I were to ask you, if you'd put up your hand, if, if the passionate zeal and even outraged aggression of Jesus has been particularly meaningful to you lately? Right? Probably not many of us would, would at least at first raise our hands. It would catch us off guard to think about Jesus in that way. Uh, and yet, uh, like we said in the very beginning, to, to really know someone is not just to experience part of who they are. To really know someone, we need to see more. We need to see something of the expression of their whole personhood. Even reflected in the songs that we've sung already this morning or the call to worship that we've had. I love you, O Lord, my strength is how we started the service. And then we sing things like, you're steadfast. You're the steadfast one. I'm going to trust in your strength, not the strength of kings. Or should the mountains melt into the roaring oceans, you're still my strong defender. What must be true of the totality of Christ's personhood for us to be able to sing songs like this? Well, part of what we come to understand from our passage this morning is that this, who is who, this is who Jesus is strong to be. This is who Christ himself proves, uh, proves to be. And so as we come to these verses in John's gospel, uh, we, we come to a section that might at first make us a bit uncomfortable. This doesn't sound like the Jesus that we're regularly used to. In this passage, Jesus is outraged. He, he's righteously angry. He hasn't lost self-control. In his anger, he has not sinned. We know that Jesus is without sin, but he's outraged. He's angry. And as a result, he carries out an aggressive response to what's going on. And while for some it might at first seem a bit troubling to think of, of Jesus fashioning a whip as we see him doing here, what we come to discover is, is that this episode is not only important for us as we consider the whole of who Jesus is. I mean, if we're really going to know Jesus, we have to have categories for Jesus that account for things like Revelation 19, where we have this extraordinary description of Jesus coming, setting things right, and we read things like, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, and he will tread out the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. We have to have these categories just in general to understand the fullness of the personhood of Christ. So we need that. Uh, but what's in this passage not only helps us build out our understanding of Christ and the totality of his personhood, but what's here is also extremely critical if we're going to truly grasp the controlling reality, the central theme that compels the zeal of Jesus' mission in salvation. Jesus is absolutely committed to save us, and he goes all the way to the cross, all the way to that torture, all the way through death 
burial, to the glory of the resurrection to do that. What drives him in all of that? Well, what's here is a central piece uh, for that uh, for that part of our understanding of Christ's own compulsion to his faithful ministry. This passage is central if we're really going to know Jesus and understand his purpose in his saving mission in the world. So we, we need what's here for that reason. And so, uh, having said that, just in terms of setting a, a bit of a context, I also want to say just a couple more things that will help frame our study today. Uh, these two things are, are important. Um, the, the, the first thing we have to speak about is that uh, some take this passage in John and they use this passage in John to say the gospel accounts of Jesus' life aren't reliable. Okay? Like, like it proves that the Bible has inaccuracies because this episode is present in John. And, and the rub for folks isn't that Jesus is angry here, though there's plenty of work to try to soften that up. But, but the rub for folks isn't that Jesus is angry here. Instead, people who, who will use this to try to discredit the Bible's accuracy will point to the fact that in the other Gospels, uh, Jesus is recorded as cleansing the temple near the end of his ministry. And here in John, cleansing of the temple is taking place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So as some would say, we, we, we can read the gospel stories knowing that they're stories, but these accounts aren't really accurate. I mean, John talks so much about timing and days and all of that, but, but then he puts this event in the exact wrong time in Jesus' ministry, they'll say. So, so we can't totally trust the gospel accounts. The cleansing of the temple took place at the end of Jesus' ministry, according to the other writers, not at the beginning. So, you know, John got this wrong, which if we're going to extrapolate means John might have got some other stuff wrong, and can we really trust our Bibles and everything explodes? To which the thinking student in the room raises their hand and says, could there not be two temple cleansings? John records the first one, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The other gospel writers record the last one. In fact, solid scholarship firmly points to that as the answer for a whole bunch of reasons that, that we won't all get into today, except just to say that in the beginning of Jesus' ministry in our passage, Jesus runs the business out of the temple and condemns the practice of business there. It's the marketplace that's the problem for Jesus in this section. Uh, literally, verse 16 reads, Stop turning my father's house into a house of business. There's a play on the word house in that verse. So it's the presence of business that's the problem in John 2, and we'll talk about that. Fast forward some two and a half years near the end of Jesus' public ministry, and the temple business is going strong again, as the other gospel writers record, and Jesus' return, he cleanses it, and he doesn't condemn them because they're doing business, he condemns them because they're thieves. They're, they're a den of robbers, he calls them. So, so we need not think that one visit from Jesus would hold off the selfish ambition and business practices of the corrupt temple system. Just this first visit here, Jesus gets there two and a half years later, they're still at it again, and so what does Jesus do? Well, he, he, he gets after them again, this time condemning them even more morally than he does, than he does this time. And, and, that, and that, again, just comes from a, a plain reading of the text. Uh, in fact, it's the first temple cleansing here that seems to get Jesus on the radar of the Jewish leaders. And then we find us by the second temple cleansing that the, re, that the religious leaders of the day have determined that they need to kill him. So there's a bit of a trajectory going on here in terms of what's, what's happening. Um, so it actually helps us to read more, more accurately to understand these two as, as two separate cleansings. Um, 
So I just share that with you in case you run across that or it's just confusing in our own reading. Why is it at the end of the other Gospels? Why is it at the beginning here? Well, there's two different, two different ones and, and they're recorded for different purposes. Uh, so that's important to know for our study. And, and the other thing is this, and then, and then we'll get into the text, but the other thing is this. Uh, when I was learning to be a classroom teacher, I had one instructor who always referred to master keys. Like one master key for effective instruction was you always need to make sure to teach the same thing in, in five to seven different ways for your students so that the kids can make sense of the concept. That was one of his master keys. Uh, for, for this passage in John, Psalm 69 verse 9 is the master key. Okay, for, for us to really make sense of what's going on here in terms of what John is intending to communicate, Psalm 69 9 is what opens this up. It's quoted in verse 17. It's referenced again in verse 22. So, so we're going to need to think from that perspective as we study. Uh, because by using this scripture, John is telling us what, what, it, what is central about Jesus in his activity here, namely, namely the zeal for his father's house, which, which will consume him. Um, so that, that's what this passage is about. So that's how we get to our main point. Psalm 69.9 is a master key. Okay. Uh, with all that said, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the passage. Um, I would encourage you to have your Bibles open so you can follow along as we always want to do. Uh, we're going to think about this whole section under the broad heading of Jesus' zeal for undefiled worship. Uh, that's what's going on here. Jesus' zeal for undefiled worship. Uh, in this section, we have something absolutely central uh, to, to come to understand if we're going to grasp Jesus' ministry uh, to us. So first of all, we're going to look at verses 12 to 16, and there we have some aggressive evidence of Jesus' zeal for undefiled worship, some aggressive evidence. Uh, if you have an eye on verses 12 to 16, you see that the passage starts there with John providing us some tra uh, transitional details from the last event. John will do this from time to time throughout his gospel. Uh, in the last section, we had Jesus uh, turning water into wine at that wedding. Now in verse 12, we're told that Jesus and his mother and his brothers and the disciples, those who have gathered with him up to this point, they go down to Caper Capernaum. Um, and as we put things together from the Gospels, we actually find that Capernaum ends up being Jesus' home base during his public ministry, so much so that in places like Matthew chapter 9, uh, Capernaum is referred to as Jesus' own town. Uh, and it was a central hub. Roman officials lived there. There was a customs office there. It was on the Sea of Galilee, so there's a lot of commerce there. It's a logical place to, to base out of for, for public ministry. Um, and while Jesus only stayed there a few days at this point, uh, John's simply giving us some indication of, of the place that Jesus would call home during his public ministry. But again, as we read on, we see that they don't stay there long because in verse 13 we read that it was the time of the Passover. In the Jewish calendar... The Passover was the festival that uh, marked the Lord's deliverance of his people from Egypt. Uh, you remember the story that the final plague brought upon Egypt was the plague of death. It was God's exercise of judgment over the land of Egypt. Uh, but for those homes which placed the blood of a lamb on the doorpost, they would be spared that plague of death. And so uh, in Exodus chapter 12, we can read about the institution of the Passover festival. It was a time for all Israel to remember the deliverance and mercy of God and that Exodus event, and as was the practice in Jesus' day, all Jewish males, 20 years old uh, and older, who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem, they were required uh, to attend the temple for the ceremonial event. And it wasn't just Jews who lived within 15 miles who would come into Jerusalem for this worship. 
uh, but Jews and Gentiles, so Jews and non-Jews, would come from all over the ancient world to Jerusalem for this. And because many would have traveled far, instead of, of bringing animals required for the sacrifices with them on this long journey that many would have engaged in, uh, they, would, they would come and they would interact with the merchants at the temple and buy the animals necessary for the sacrifices once they got there, which makes sense. And, and with that, because the temple required a certain type of coin to pay the temple tax, uh, money exchangers would be present too to change out the, the many different currencies that were represented in the larger Roman world during this time uh, to change out all those different currencies for the kind that the temple would accept. Uh, so you've got these, uh, these merchants, you've got uh, money exchangers there. And in thinking about that, on the one hand, this practice makes sense. Um, that This kind of market filled a necessary role in the context of temple worship as people came from a long way and they needed to have, uh, make provision to be able to bring sacrifices, money needed to be changed, all of these kinds of things. And so there's nothing intrinsically wrong with all of this. Uh, in fact, for a long time, records show that these merchants set up on the side of the Mount of Olives, which was a certain distance from the temple, and that's where they would conduct their, their business. However, as time went on, the priority of convenience, and more than that, the desire for more business, which included the desire of the temple leaders for more money to come in, because of convenience and also merchants wanting to profit from, from higher exposure to travelers, what happened was that the market moved from the Mount of Olives outside the temple courts inside the Gentile court of the temple precinct. So, so in the section of the temple where non-Jews were able to come and offer their worship to God, a market replaced the sphere of, uh, of reverential worship that was to be set apart there. Uh, listen, listen to one scholar's description then of, what, of what's going on. He tries to paint, paint the picture for us. He says this, uh, instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is now the bellowing of cattle and the bleating of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is now noisy commerce. So the temple, first constructed under Solomon and then rebuilt under Zerubbabel after the return from the exile and then under Herod, now it's being refurbished. The temple was understood by Jews and God-fearing non-Jews alike to, to be the place where God was uniquely present with His people. And in the temple, God's glory was manifest in the Holy of Holies, thinking especially of the Day of Atonement. And the temple sacrifices were regularly made morning and evening, seeking forgiveness for people's sins. In the temple, festivals of deliverance, uh, like the Passover, were celebrated. And, and there was space for prayer and devotion and pious reverence for the Lord. All in all, the, the temple was the central sacred meeting space between God and, and people. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem for the Passover, and what does He say? Well, in the, in the place where people are to turn toward God in, in pious devotion and worship, animals are noisy, and people are bartering, and money is changing hands. The place of sacred worship has been desecrated now by this common market. And so as one writer put it, Jesus responds by proving he has a burning intolerance for irreverent worship. A burning intolerance for irreverent perverted worship is what he says. So what does Jesus do? Well, verse 15, he makes a whip. And with the whip, he drives all the people and all the animals 
out of the temple precinct. Probably the whip was more for the animals than the people. How else are you going to get all those animals to move? But, but there's no indication of anything less than outraged aggression on the part of Christ. He's driving out the people and animals. He's pouring out the money. You see that in the text? Pouring out the money onto the ground that's being made and exchanged. And, and, and not just dumping out all the money, but he's tossing over all the tables. And he's yelling at the merchants as he's doing this. Verse 16, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a house of business. So gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Is true. But that's not the whole picture if we're really going to get to know Jesus, is it? Gentle Jesus is also outraged and aggressive and righteously angry Jesus as he responds to the perversion of the worship of God. So instead of people given being given space for the humble supplication and confession that was to be provided for in the temple, it was this place of profane and economically driven distraction. And that made Jesus angry. Jesus proved himself zealous for undefiled worship. We get that word zealous here, like I mentioned, from its use in Psalm 69. Uh, in, the, in the quotation in verse 17, the Hebrew term that's translated as zeal, back there in the Old Testament context, is very regularly translated as jealous in the Old Testament. Like in the book of Numbers, where it's, where it's a righteous compulsion on the part of a spouse who's been cheated on, for example, to be jealous, or in this case, zealous, for what's wrong to be made right. Jesus displays this deep-seated desire compelled by a strong, jealous devotion to God the Father that the place where God and His people meet would, would not be profane. Jesus is jealous. He's zealous for proper worship. And at one level, um, there's, there, there's so much we could say here, but at one level, there's just a basic point of reflection that we can draw out from this before we get to the fullness of, of what all of this is representing. And, and as we come to a passage like this, we, we, we can't hardly do anything but at least stop and ask, what is my posture towards worship? Right? This passage compels that question. What's my posture? What's yours? In this particular setting in John 2, convenience and profit and concern to grow a business that seem to dominate the scene are what's there in the place of, of right and proper worship. In our setting, we have to think, how does this affect us? It's just a question worth asking. Has stuff that should stay outside the worship court, so to speak, started to creep into my life of worship? Are there other things that have been allowed to come in and distract from the centrality of a posture of reverential, sacred awe before God? I'll give you my biggest temptation along these lines as I was thinking about this this week. You come up with your own. I'll give you mine. For mine, it's professionalism. Week in and week out, corporate worship is a big part of my job. And so I have to check myself there. Has, has doing my job moved to a central place when it comes to my public worship life rather than the devoted adoration of the master of the universe? That's, that's, a question, that's my question for me. You can figure out your question for you. But of other things displaced the centrality and critical sacredness of regular worship in our lives. Especially as we think about this corporate worship element. Things can creep in. So, so to know Jesus 
is, is to know the one who is aggressively zealous for worship that's undefiled. And while we know worship is, is all represented in the totality of our life, there's some uniqueness as we think about it here in the context of, of a confined place for corporate gathering. And, and if Jesus has this kind of zeal for corporate worship, this zeal for, uh, for the gathered place of uh, the adoration of God, if he's my savior and master, well, then what's my posture towards these things? Does it bother me when the sacred things of God are taken lightly or not considered much at all? I had a conversation, here we go off the notes, but it's going to happen. I had a conversation recently with another pastor. We were talking about the Lord's table, and I was, we were just having a discussion about how, how it went at their church, and, and he was telling me that they want to always make sure they open the table up to anyone and everyone who might want to come and, uh, and experience Jesus. And so whether believers or unbelievers alike, the table is open for everyone. And while we respect the fact that the gospel call goes out to all people, Without, without hindrance, without question, without limitation, the gospel call goes out to all people. We also have to read our Bibles and see that the Lord is so upset with the way the Corinthians have been defiling the Lord's Supper that some of them have died. Right? We have to recognize there's something unique represented in the table of the Lord that is not just come, come one, come all, have a little magic juice, but there's something reflected in the table of the Lord that is uniquely set apart, and we're careful with that in our public worship. We don't take that lightly. And so we had this conversation and he, he saw things a little bit differently. But that would be one example of the way we need to be careful along these lines. So, first of all here, we have this, we have this aggressive evidence of Jesus' zeal for public worship, for corporate worship, uh, for, for, the, for the reverential worship of God's people. Um, secondly then, in, in verses 17 and 18, we have some impending danger because of Jesus' zeal for undefiled worship. So first, we have this, this evidence of Jesus' zeal. Now there's danger because of need that, that following the Look at verse 17. In verse 17, we read that, that following this display of aggression, Jesus' disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, now the disciples don't understand all this yet. We get that down in verse 22. But, but this is the verse that comes to their mind as they see Jesus doing what he's doing. Um, so, so all this is going on, and we can just imagine the scene. We put ourselves in, in the disciples' place even as they watch this. Um, imagine the scene as the dust settles. One commentator by the name of Morgan, he put it like this. He says, There's, there Jesus stands in lonely dignity, coins scattered, animals dispersed in every direction, and those with the animals gone. We can, we can picture that. It's one of those situations that went from, from what would have felt extremely chaotic only moments ago to a kind of eerie serenity and calm. Now, everybody's out, and Jesus is standing there in the middle of it all, probably with his chest heaving, fire in his eyes. Maybe he's taken one final coin and chucked it across the room. Right? And as the few disciples who were with him at this point stood watching this, probably with their mouths hung open, as this happened, Psalm 69, 9 comes to their mind. Zeal for his house will consume me. Psalm 69 is a psalm of David. And in the context of that psalm, David is persecuted by all those around him as it seems that he alone is the one standing for the Lord's honor. And in the midst of the psalm, David says, zeal for your house has consumed me. Uh, David has been concerned for the sacred worship of the Lord and people are against him for it. Now, we have a really critical element of interpretation in terms of making sense of this Psalm 69 statement that we need to grasp. Because when we read this, we hear it in a way that might 
be most common for us, just as readers of, of English, right? We, we, we read, zeal for your house will consume me. And that can sound like Jesus has been consumed with zeal for God's house. That's how, just natural reading of it in English, that, that's how it comes to us. Like, like zeal has consumed, zeal has overcome him. Of course, that's not accurate, inaccurate, that's true. Zeal, he's very zealous here. However, in the context of Psalm 69, and actually this way, the way this word is translated as consume, the way this word is regularly used in the Psalms, it, it doesn't point to the psalmist being consumed with zeal. Instead, it, it's because of the zeal that the psalmist is in danger of being consumed. You see the difference? Right? Or we could translate this word as devoured. And we get this as we read the psalm. David says, zeal for your house uh, is going to be what ends up consuming, causing me to be consumed. David speaks about being devoured. So all the way through Psalm 69, we're reading these things. His, his opponent's reproaches are falling on him. David was left weeping and humbled. He, he was the talk of those sitting at the gates, the psalm says. He's overwhelmed as by a flood of deep waters. He even says it's like a pit that closes its mouth over me. Because of the zeal uh, for the house of the Lord that David has, he's being consumed. It's like he's going to be devoured by his enemies. So we put ourselves back in the disciples' position now as they just observe what Jesus did. Keeping in mind that in the context of first century Rome, the Romans were very pro-religion and pro-temple. It, it kept people in check in their minds. And to defile a temple of any kind, whether Jewish or Roman or, or otherwise, it, it was a capital offense. And Jesus comes in in the midst of this high festival and causes this total chaotic uproar, running the whole market out of the gates. And this verse comes to the disciples' minds. Zeal for your house will consume me. To paraphrase it, we could say, zeal for your house will be what devours me. It's going to be the end of me. The disciples are still putting together the significance of Jesus, but they're believing to a certain degree. John has told us that. And they know the scriptures point to Jesus. Philip's evangelism of Nathaniel back in chapter 1 showed us that. And as they're putting together that Jesus is the greater son of David, you know, the, the, the true king of Israel who's been promised the fulfillment of all the scriptures, they're getting their minds around how this will play out and zeal for the undefiled and pure worship of God may just cause Jesus to be devoured, consumed by his enemies. That's the conclusion they're reaching. The disciples would have probably been in shock at this point, but that scripture comes to mind, and, and it would obviously have them concerned. That Jesus may very well find himself with a pit closing over him because of his actions here. And that concern was not unfounded because in the next verses, the leaders show up. How could they not? They show up in verse 18 and say to Jesus, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Now, it's very interesting uh, that the Jewish leadership doesn't just have Jesus arrested as a kind of run-of-the-mill thug who's causing trouble, isn't it? That's interesting. They, they could have. They would have had the, 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 the resources at their disposal with, with temple police and things like that. Uh, but however this took place, whatever the nature of the Jews' interactions with Jesus and, and the awareness of his ministry was at this point, it causes them to keep some kind of distance to, to a certain point. They don't have him arrested. They just ask, what gives you the right to do what you've done? And Jesus will reply to them in the next verses. But, but we can think on this briefly. 
Uh, we, we don't actually catch this entirely within the context of our English Bibles, but, uh, but verse 18 actually begins with the word answered, which, which is very interesting. So it reads like this, answering him, the Jews replied to him. That's how the text reads, which helps us see that John's making the point that what Jesus was doing was not some out of control expression of anger, but instead it was a statement that required a response. Jesus driving everyone out was Jesus saying something. That's why they're answering him. So they show up. Leadership shows up. Also, it's just worth noting when we see Jews in John's gospel like this, especially in the context of some conflict, that's usually his way of denoting those who are going to be opposed to Jesus. So there's this tension already. Leadership knows that Jesus has done something that demands a response. So they don't come arresting him, but instead they come answering Jesus' enormous statement. And, and, And that's just something for us to think about. It's something just to consider the faithfulness of Jesus in the face of danger uh, and, and how this still provoked him to faithful action. Of course, of course, we know that Jesus is going to be faithful all the way to the cross. We know this about Christ. Uh, in fact, you pick up on that just in Psalm 69 in the way it's quoted. Uh, in Hebrew, the, the psalm reads, zeal for your house has consumed me. Here, John, he actually puts it in a future, in future tense, zeal for your house will consume me. There's something coming here. And in fact, the false witnesses against Jesus at the end in his trial before his crucifixion twist the events uh, that happen here, twist what Jesus says in this account to, to try to condemn him. So this will be, in that sense, a consuming event for Jesus in, in a cross-centered sense. They'll use it to condemn him. We'll talk more about that in a second. But, but, but just in this, we pause to note the costly faithfulness of Jesus amid the obvious presence of danger as he acts this way. Just note the public expression of his conviction despite opposition and threat that would, that would no doubt come. So often in our day as Christian believers, we are, we are most concerned to be on peaceful terms in our conversations and interactions. At least we try to be. And, and we want to be at peace with all people insofar as we are able as a direct command from the Apostle Paul. right? But there is also a time to not be at peace. Right? Just thinking... Of, of, of various pressures we face. Even I was thinking this week about the kids in our congregation, some of whom are in public school and face some unique things. There is a time to stand, sometimes quite alone for truth, of what it means to be zealous for the honor of the Lord. And in those times, in those times, it might seem like we'll be consumed because of the opposition that's around us. What the teachers might say, what the class, classmates might say. But we still stand firm. Or for us, even what our friends or our neighbors might say. I was in a conversation with a neighbor Friday night and some things came up, and I was, I was quiet instead of addressing them with, with, with gospel truth because I knew it would offend him, and I was just hesitant. But as, as I reflected on that conversation, I have the time in. I, I, I should have said something to him more than I did because what was controlling me in that time was not trying to live at peace with all people, obeying the Apostle Paul. Really, what was controlling me at that time was fear. I just didn't want him to stop liking me. You know? so, so we need to be willing to bear the reproach that faithfulness can bring. But here's Jesus. He knows full well what's coming. And instead of shrinking back from faithfulness, he stands firm. He even stands loudly and disruptively. His disciples see it as a threat, but he's not dissuaded, even in the face of the leadership coming to him. There are times we have to face some impending danger because of our zeal for the honor of the Lord. Here Jesus faces impending danger because of his zeal for undefiled worship. And then as we, as we keep going in the last section, 
we see that the zeal of Christ, rather than lead to his ultimate ruin, uh, it actually results in climactic provision. It drives towards climactic provision, we could say. Uh, so in verse 18, if you look at that, the Jews answered Jesus' huge public statement by asking him you know, what authority he has to do what he's done. And Jesus replies to them, he just says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Of course, that's, that's nonsense to these religious leaders and they say as much in verse 20, this temple took 46 years to build, you're going to build it back in three days? Jesus' comment doesn't seem to make any sense to them. And the interaction actually at this point seems to come to an end. Right? The leaders haven't arrested Jesus, but, but for all who would be looking on, it would seem as though Jesus has, has in a sense, lost the moral high ground in this debate. Right? He hasn't provided a solid answer, at least according to these leaders. It's not a reasonable answer, uh, even, even though he must display some extraordinary level of moral suasion and that they don't arrest him at this point. Probably they're struggling with the guilt that they have in and of themselves for allowing this to go on. And not just that, but we know popular opinion of Jesus is going to grow and they're afraid of that. So there are these things that are no doubt keeping them in check. But Jesus doesn't give a response that's satisfying to them. And even though these leaders don't understand Jesus' answer, actually we're told in verse 22 his disciples don't even get it at this point, John inserts a comment that brings clarity for us as his readers. So John tells us in verse 21 and 22 that when Jesus was talking about the temple being raised in three days, he wasn't talking about a temple made with hands over the course of a 46-year refurbishment. He was speaking about the temple of his body. So in verse 22, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus made. Back in verse 17, we're just told that the disciples remembered Psalm 69. It wasn't until the other side of the cross and resurrection that they believed it. And, and, and here's where we set uh, our, uh, ourselves to, to really the heart of what's going on here in everything that John is emphasizing for us. It, it was actually in the cross and resurrection that Jesus' zeal for the purified worship of God was put on its most climactic and effective display. But what do we see in Jesus' ministry here? What we see in Jesus' ministry here is that he has a primary concern for the temple because the temple was the central sacred meeting space between God and his people. Jesus is concerned for the central sacred meeting space between God and his people. What concerned Christ was the fact that humanity in our deep need needed to have a place to be in reconciled communion with the God who made us. That's the big thing. That, consume, that, was, that was consuming in the zeal in that, in that sense for Christ. He was overwhelmed with that, with that uh, persistent awareness of our human need for being able to somehow have this meeting place between God and humanity. And, and Jesus goes into the temple that ultimately took him where? All the way, giving us this aggressive picture of what he's doing. But it's that very aggression that ultimately took him where? All the way to the cross to purchase that climactically for us. When Jesus speaks, or when John speaks about the temple being Jesus' body, we're ultimately being shown that it is in the person of Jesus Christ himself that, that we find the sacred meeting space between God and his people. Jesus himself proves to be that, that space for us, that one for us who provides that. And the same zeal that drove him in a kind of righteous indignation to clear the temple as he did is the same zeal which drove him in faithful, persevering, effective mission 
as he went all the way to the cross to take our sins upon himself, to rise again to new life in order that we ourselves could be purified to have perfect communion with God through him. This is why when we ultimately get to thinking about the new creation, what all of this is pointing forward to, we have John speaking about metaphors for new creation in the book of Revelation that he also wrote. And in Revelation, uh, in the end of Revelation in, in 21, 22, we have all these metaphors for new creation, and one of them is a city. And in, in one of those metaphors of new creation with regard to the city, we're told that there's going to be no temple there because the temple is going to be God and it's going to be the Lamb. The center of our worship, the center of our communion with God is not going to be a building that separates us by degrees from the center of God's manifestation of His holiness, but instead our communion with God in the, in the extent of eternity in a new creation will be in the very presence of God Himself because that is what zeal, Jesus in His zeal ultimately purchased for us. And he, as He did that, He was consumed by that, wasn't He? He was consumed as He went to the cross and death over, overcame him and he went down into the grave and he was, he was buried for three days. But of course, that's not the final word because that overcoming, uh, that overcoming death that Jesus subjected himself to was ultimately uh, only the beginning of his vindication or his glory, as John calls it, as he was raised from the dead, proving that what he did was efficacious and victorious. And so as we think about uh, this temple cleansing narrative, what we're really seeing is something of the personhood of Jesus Christ. If we're going to know Jesus, if we're really going to understand who he is, what we have to understand is he is zealous for undefiled worship, so zealous in fact that he didn't just uh, engage in this way in the temple on one or two occasions, but he actually went all the way to the cross to shed his own blood in order that we could be made undefiled worshipers of the living God, meeting God through the mediated righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. And so it's really a glorious statement here about what's true about Jesus. To know Jesus is to know the one who is zealous for undefiled worship, and that is what he's purchased for you. He has made you clean through his work on the cross in order that before God, he sees you now as perfectly righteous, standing in the righteousness of Christ. And in that righteousness, we have perfect uninterrupted communion with God now and gloriously in eternity in personal physical communion with Jesus Christ himself forever because of what he's done. The point is that we would be made undefiled worshipers. The point is that Jesus is aggressively zealous for that and thank God he is because it is, it is that aggressive zeal that took him all the way to the cross and purchased that redemption for us. And so we come to this passage with, with, with a bit of trepidation at first, simply because of what it, what it represents. But ultimately, we come to a passage like this, seeing that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of, of, uh, of all the promises of God. He's the fulfiller of Psalm 69. He's the one who really went all the way uh, to, to, the, uh, to, to the point of death and took all of those things in order that we could be saved. And we, and we praise him for that. Uh, so that helps set this passage in a context that leaves us not... Uh, concerned about the person of Jesus, but it actually leaves us in a position of worship, a, a position of being thankful for the significance of Jesus' zeal and what it ultimately means for us. Let's pray together. Uh, so, Father, we are thankful for this truth and we pray that it would be renewing for us. We're thankful uh, that we know Jesus not as a, a uh, passive engager in, in our salvation, but He's an active 
He's an active Savior. He's the one who even aggressively would pursue what is necessary to save us all the way to the cross and through death to resurrection glory. We thank you for that. We thank you that we don't serve a Savior who is inactive, but a Savior who is who is active. And, and we see that here. We thank you for that. We praise you for it. We ask that it would be renewing as we come to see Jesus in the light of, of the glories of who he is in his fullness and rest in the significance of the gospel that he provides. We ask this in, in his name. Amen.